This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 420, a conversation with Dan Jurgens. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 420. It's our conversation with Dan Jorgens, or should I say the second conversation with Dan Jorgens. Uh, the first one was way back in, I believe, May 2015 on episode 270. So if you want, you can go back, check that out, give it a listen, and then you can hit us back up here. Uh, this time, we mainly talked about his current work in the last year or so. Uh, the last time we talked with Dan, uh, it was right before Batmite had come out, uh, long before uh, Lois and Clark had started. So this is a, gr- a great time to kind of dig in and talk about what he's been working on the last year and a half because he's been quite busy um, and it was a really great conversation we do talk a little bit about uh, some of the stuff he worked on in the 90s etc but for the most part it's focused on his current work and uh, if you're more interested in his uh, kind of more career highlights I do recommend going back and checking out episode 270 as we did do a lot more of a focus on the different things he'd done in his career uh, th- so before we get into the episode you can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com like us on Facebook rate and review us on iTunes subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. I do want to thank some listeners from the Marvel Masterworks Forum. They're actually name-checked in the episode as they uh, submitted questions for Dan uh, that we integrated into the conversation, and I think the, the answers turned out quite well. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Dan Jurgens. Dan, welcome back to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing today? Great. It's always good to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have you back. It's uh, it's interesting. I was looking. It's been about a year and a half since we had you on the show last, and it's interesting how much has happened and how much you've been working on in that intervening time. I was listening to our uh, previous uh, conversation back, and um, it was right after the, your Convergence Superman issues had come out. You hadn't uh, the uh, Batmite hadn't started yet. Uh, obviously, Superman Lois and Clark hadn't started. It was a long ways away. What a lot of a lot of stuff in the last year and a half. How do you manage the roller coaster? Uh, you know, it's funny because as you just went through the list, I was just sitting here thinking, wow, that's a lot of stuff in a year and a half. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, that is actually one of the fun things of working in comics is that there is a lot of new stuff. There's always something new around the corner. And one of the reasons that I always liked working on more than one project at a time, and this kind of goes back to when I was just drawing or just writing and drawing, is that there's always something new around the corner that can get you juiced and get you excited. And to me, that's, as I said, that's one of the fun things of working in comics. Now, if we rewind the clock, so the, the first thing that kind of came out after our conversation was was Batmite. What was it like working on that book? I really dug it. I'm sad it didn't last a little bit longer, but uh, was it always meant to be a short run, or was it conceived as an ongoing? You know, it was conceived as a miniseries, but I had always hoped it would catch on and give us the chance to do more. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, but I also knew that in choosing something like Batmite and saying, you know, let's give this a try that that would be the likely outcome. Um, I will say this, during the time I was doing it, I was having an absolute blast doing the book, and <laughs> it was it was really a lot of fun because, and this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago, it was very different, and it was very fun, and it was a chance to stretch some writing muscles that you don't necessarily stretch on other properties. Now, how did that even come about? Like, was, did they approach you with the idea, or did you kind of have the concept first, or how did you and DC kind of decide on Batmite? Because it is a, a very interesting kind of niche character get, to get its own book. Well, I knew that we overall 
in terms of what DC was doing at the time was looking at and considering different types of efforts that it was an idea to kind of dig deep in the chest and, and find, um, you know, greater diversity, not just in terms of characters and creators, but also just in terms of overall concept. And so at one point, uh, I think I was, you know, I was talking to Dan DiDio, and I can't remember if I texted him or was actually talking to him, but I know I said, you know, what would you say to Batmite? And he said, I wouldn't say no. And that's when I really, you know, that's when I really started getting into it a little more. The uh, How did you guys decide on the artist? Were you involved in picking the artist for that book and Corin Howell? Or how did he end up on the project? Uh, Corinne Howell is actually a she. Oh, and, my apologies. And, uh, yeah, that first came up when Bobby Chase asked me to take a look at her work. And I said, well, I can really see this. This is great. So um, that's about all it took. But, yeah, it was Bobby Chase who first turned me on to Corinne's stuff, and she's absolutely terrific. How did you did you find yourself modifying your script in any way to capitalize on what her artwork could do? I probably do that with every artist I work with. That I think uh, it all boils down to a couple of things. I like to play to an artist's strengths whenever possible. I like to find out what they're interested in doing because the more interested they are, the better the overall product is. So to answer your question, yes, I did, but that's always how I work because that's how I would want a writer to work with me if I was the artist. What was your inspiration behind how you wrote the Batmite character? Because the character hasn't had a tremendous amount of appearances. No, he hasn't. And I think it was a blend of a lot of different things. One is just Batmite's appearance himself. And he had had an appearance um, in an old, I think it was back when the Batman family book existed, or perhaps it was Detective. I'm not quite sure which uh, right now. But a, a nice little story that was written by Bob Rosakis and drawn by Michael Golden. That was actually absolutely a brilliant Batmite story where he showed up in the DC office. So that was part of it. And then um, beyond that, there have been other efforts at satire in comics, whether it was Howard the Duck, or a few other books that you could name, and and all of them, I think, would take this kind of shot at doing a commentary on comics, as well as telling a story about the character at the same time, and that's sort of what we did. Hmm. Now, at the same time, you also launched Batman Beyond, I guess the, the first volume that you were work, working on. Um, what was it like taking over that character from where he had been in the... Uh, uh, Earth 2 Future's End storyline and kind of developing him into a Batman of the future? Well, we always knew when we were doing Future's End that we might very well have a Bat, uh, Batman Beyond book coming out of that. And so, <clears throat> you know, by the time we were getting to issue, say, 30, 35 of Future's End, then it became very apparent. Um, and as the arc in the story went, you know, when it, when Batman Beyond first showed up in the DCU for those first chunk of issues, Brian Azzarello wrote all of those. And then when we made the switch from Terry McGinnis being Batman and he died and Tim Drake inherited the costume, then I took it over. So we always kind of knew we were building to that and that eventually we would end up with a book where Tim Drake was playing Batman Beyond in the future. And what I always saw as... Um, 
a way to connect DC's sort of more immediate future to the present. It's weird because we always knew that often a thousand years from now we had Legion and superheroes, right? And, mm-hmm. and we felt comfortable in the way that was connected to the present because of Superman and Superboy and everything. And I kind of wanted to do that with Batman Beyond, and I think that's what we were able to do, and that's kind of why we used Tim Drake. What led you to decide to kind of have Tim Drake kind of walk into the sunset, so to speak, um, and bring back Terry McGinnis in the new relaunched rebirth version of Batman Beyond? Part of the focus of rebirth is to identify the best possible characteristics of these characters, the worlds they inhabit, and everything else. And even though we had been doing Tim Drake as Batman Beyond, I think if you start to boil down Batman Beyond to its base sort of concept, it's the young high school kid, Terry McGinnis, who becomes Batman, right? So just in terms of what the overall theme of Rebirth is, of putting characters in their proper places and using the strongest aspect of those characters and the ones that people really identify with most, the ideas and concepts that have the most resonance, that's how Terry McGinnis then works his way back in as being Batman Beyond. Now, how do you approach those two different iterations of Batman Beyond differently? There's a part of it that has to be a different and a part of it that has to be consistent. The part that has to be consistent is this natural transition from Tim to Terry. And I think we very much concentrated on that as Batman Beyond Volume 1 came to an end. In terms of how we build something new, it has to be this idea that now we're dealing with a Terry McGinnis that is a little bit older. The world he's in has undergone some changes. The people around him are a little bit different. His brother Matt is a little bit older. And then it is, what can you find that's new in the character? And I like to think for any of us, if we start something out when we're 16, and then we kind of come back to it when we're, say, 21, that we change in that amount of time and we become somewhat a different person and that's what we have to key on with Terry McGinnis now. And now with the new book, what can you kind of tease us? And I mean, I guess the first issue I think comes out this week, does it not? Yes, I believe so, yes. So we've had the rebirth issue, we've you kind of set the stage for what the idea of the new arc is going to be. What else can you kind of position or, or pitch us or tease us for what we're actually going to get once that new issue comes out? At this point, uh, we are going to start off a story wherein Dana Tan has been kidnapped by the Jokers. And one of the things we have never dealt with, really, in Volume 1 of Batman Beyond was Dana Tan. So we're bringing her back on stage, and it is Terry's job to go rescue her. And what we've set up is basically this very large neighborhood of Gotham City, which is now totally controlled by the Jokers, that they now have a much bigger... Uh, agenda than they used to before, which was just general chaos, that now they have something specific in mind, that they have more of a goal they're working toward, and that is what Terry has to take on and confront, and that's part of what makes it all different. So we have Terry back in the costume, we have him once again becoming accustomed to this world that he had sort of checked out of for a little while, for lack of a better term, and then bringing Dana back on and this being her first meeting with Terry after that, and after thinking that Terry was dead. Hmm. What's it like using the Jokers? They're a lot of fun, and and what I find fun about it, and we introduced this uh, very early on in the story, is this idea, you know, if you think of all the things you could have modeled yourself on, 
that you found inspiration in, in Gotham City, it was not Batman. It's all these people who instead found inspiration on the Jokers. And in a weird way, that feels to me a little bit like where we're at societally right now. And so I want to play on that a little bit. And I think there are certain parallels to the modern day you can draw where we don't necessarily model ourselves on the best aspects of who we can be or should be or anything else. We seem to find, um, I won't necessarily say the worst, but we find differences that are really odd to me. And so I think there's plenty to play with there in terms of the Jokers. Given the uh, the nature of rebirth and really kind of refocusing and retooling on the core aspects of the character, as you mentioned, in in this case with Terry McGinnis, do you think that's kind of shutting the door on bringing back Tim Drake at some point, or at least really trying to keep him off the table as much as possible? Or do you have a story in mind for how you'd want to bring him back? I don't ever believe in closing doors because I, I think just, well, there are a couple of things that come into it. One is just from the perspective of being a writer, I don't think it's anything any writer necessarily ever wants to do is close doors um but at this time really the the focus is 100 percent terry mcginnis and and the characters around him like his brother matt and max and where they're going to go and what their future will be so you know i'll tell you i don't have any plans to bring tim back it is 100 percent focused on terry at this point okay and then last year, you also started working on Superman, Lois, and Clark, which eventually, obviously, led to that character's return. How did that book originally come about? I and mean, obviously, you wrote the Convergence Superman book. Was that so well received within the audiences, sorry, the offices as well as the audience that it kind of mandated bringing the character back into the regular universe? Or how did that book come come about? Well, that's that's kind of odd because some of that goes back to Future's End as well, where we started talking about. Um, as we were working on Future's End, uh, what could we possibly do um, as, as a publishing effort while DC was moving to California? And that's somewhat where Convergence overall came from. And as we were talking about Convergence at one point, and I, I was talking with Dan and a couple of the other guys about Lois and Clark being in a world where we kind of take their relationship to the next step and they have a a baby, you know, then the question always becomes right away, what does that baby become? Where does the baby go? How do you deal with that? What is the fate of Lois and Clark? And we had a couple ideas in mind for that. But as the months played out and the stories unfolded, that would change. But the one thing I always said is that infant, that child, that can represent the future somehow. That can be where we go from here, that once we bring that child into the world, that can be whatever we want it to be, and we can build so much off of that. One day, Dan gave me a call, and he said, you know, I've always wanted to do a book called Lois and Clark, and and we started talking about different ideas, and the idea that they had been working here uh, or living here in the DCU all along in secret, that John would be older now and all of that. We started to build that idea in right away. And then this notion that he um, would step in for the current New 52 Superman. So e- even that early, it was kind of you guys were figuring that eventually he would step in to take over? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, what was it like working on Lois and Clark and kind of developing their relationship and 
and being able to kind of go back to what a lot of people think is, you know, the true Superman. I mean, there, there's a reason why that book has resonated with people and why people are really enjoying your take on the character in action comics because it feels like we're getting our Superman back. So how do you kind of handle that? Well, you know, I've always made the point, Adam, that it's not just ever about Superman, that it is the characters in the world around him. And most importantly in all of that, to me, is Lois Lane. Because if you go all the way back to Action Comics number one, you know, in 1938, not only is that where we first saw Clark and Superman, it's also where we saw Lois Lane. And, and I think part of the overall existence of having a Superman is that Lois Lane has to be a part of his life, that, that they are just, there's, there's that sense where they are together. And it's because Lois represents so much in terms of who he is and, and the way Superman relates to nor, you know, normal people or people, however you want to phrase it. But Lois represents so much in terms of how Superman interprets the world around him that I think they have to be together. So right away in doing a book called Lois and Clark, it was all about their relationship. Ultimately, any successful comic book has to be about relationships somehow. And it was about taking the, the strongest aspects of Clark and Lois and why they are a couple, what makes them a family, and then adding John to all of that to build this whole new future for Superman. Was it fun kind of developing John as a character? Oh, very much so. I mean, it was an absolute blast, and this idea that I could do a series where we would almost see, like, not each year of John's life necessarily, but an episode from something close to that. So we could see kind of how Lois and Clark would have first struggled with this idea of here we are in this world, we have a baby, we don't ever want to subject him to danger or anything, let's kind of live our own lives in secret and not tell everybody else, especially since this world already has a Superman in its own Lois. But at the same time, doing good. So all along, Superman was here being the hero in the background, doing his thing, which people were unaware of. We have all sorts of backstory there, and that Lois was writing her books and exposing corruption and and all this kind of thing. I think it really added to who they are as characters. Mm-hmm. What do you think it says that, I mean, fan, when the New 52 happened, we got kind of younger versions of all, of all the main characters, and they felt younger, and then we have, you know, this version of Superman coming back, and people really respond to that, and he feels like the, you know, the older, more mature Superman, he's also a father, and people aren't scared about that, they actually really like that, that kind of take on the character. What do you think that says about what the audience can, can take in a Superman? In a way, if you look at the history of Superman, and I'll, I'll be a little careful of terminology here because, you know, we don't want to make him seem totally stodgy or anything. <laughs> but in a way, Superman has always held sort of a fatherly position in the DC universe. Mm-hmm. That as, as you look at his role in the Justice League or whatever, because he has always been, been seen, I think, as DC's first hero, that there's always been that slight component to him anyway. I think it works especially now because Batman already had Damien. And and there is, we, we always have this eternal um, comparison between Superman and Batman, Bruce and Clark, how they live their lives, what they do, how they interpret the same situations, how they're different and all of that. And if you take Bruce now and have him in this role of having Damien and you have Clark in this role of having John, we now get to compare them as fathers as well. 
And I, and I think that really is something that is special about the DC universe. I have always thought that the nice thing about DC is we do have this rich legacy, and these characters have been around since 1938. So let's use that to our best advantage. And I think now, as I said, this just adds to the tapestry of it all. It makes that history so much more rich. Interesting. I uh, When I was preparing for this conversation, I did go back and listen to our last conversation. What I did find curious was that at one point I'd asked you, you know, would you write Superman again? And you're like, I don't, I don't know. DC and I would really have to be on the same page. So I guess that happened. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that would have been framed very much from, you know, in the New 52 launch, I came back and wrote Superman for like six issues with Keith Giffen. And, you know, I, I don't think at that time DC and I were on the same page. I don't think we saw that character the same way. And there's no crime in that, by the way. It's just... Oh, of course not. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's just... You know, and this happens all the time where a writer wants one thing, other people want another thing, and that's absolutely fine. But yeah, I think now we had gotten to the point where we absolutely were moving in the same direction for the character, so it's worked out very well. I think part of that is because this one, I, the way he's been approached and the way you end up writing him is that he is the Superman you wrote before, and he's not this newer version of Superman who's a little bit different. Traits of the Superman that I had before, I do see him as being somewhat different from that character now, just because of the changes in his life. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you start to break it down, anybody changes, I think, once they have a child. And so there are some things that go along with that. But more important than that, I think what people have back now is a Superman with a history. And that Superman with a history means that they are now reading a Superman where they basically know what his background was, you know, that Doomsday happened, for example, that so many other things did as well, because in comics, context means a lot. And and I think that with the New 52 Superman, we probably felt as readers quite adrift at times, because we didn't know for sure what was in that background. And you know, we'd been reading about a Superman that was married to Lois Lane, and all of a sudden we had one that wasn't, but we didn't understand necessarily what that meant because there were, there's like five years of missing history or so. So now I think we have context back, and that makes it much more easy for people to relate to that character. When Rebirth was kind of being put together, how early were you involved in the conversation with regards to Superman and where his direction would be, or were you always involved? Well, I think it's... In many ways, Superman became the cornerstone, if you go back to Lois and Clark, by bringing him back and everything that started to happen there. That's sort of a prequel to Rebirth in a way. So, yeah, these discussions were, you know, part of it right from the start. And with you, with you taking over Action Comics and also taking over the legacy numbering, um, how did it feel to be on the book and get the numbering back and have you know uh, the kind of classic version of Superman back and being able to be part of the, as you said, kind of the cornerstone of Rebirth? What did that feel like? Well, that was awesome. And, and it, it's weird because when we first started to plan this out, um, it wasn't going to be Action Comics. We actually had a different title in mind. And then uh, the decision was made, and I was not involved with this, um, to go back and call it Action Comics. I thought, that's awesome, fantastic, you know, legacy title. And I, I had hung up the phone after having, having the discussion, and I thought, gosh, I should have suggested that they pick up the original numbering scheme, but they probably wouldn't go with it anyway. <laughs> and then, like, two hours later, they called up and said, oh, by the way, we forgot to tell you 
that we're also going to pick up and start with issue 957. So I thought that was terrific right from the start. I think it is important, you know, getting back to what I talked about earlier with this concept of legacy and this idea that both Superman and Batman, who have been around since 38 and 39 in action and detective respectively, that we should get to the point where we see Action Comics 1000 one day and Detective Comics 1000 today. I think that's important to who we are as an industry. Was there ever discussion about bringing back uh, the underwear? Oh, there have been a lot of discussions (laughs) about that, actually. Um, But no, sadly, it did not happen. Was it something that you would have liked, personally? Personally, yeah, but I I also recognize the realities of where we're at. And and again, I will always say, I never saw it as underwear. That um, The whole time I was working on the book, in the 80s and in the 90s, to me, it was always just a different colored part of the costume that it wasn't like Superman had a, you know, a blue unitard on that he put on red underwear and a yellow belt over. <laughs> I saw it as a one-piece costume um, that just kind of was a decorative element. I never saw it as underwear, ever. With the first arc, um, it's interesting, so you have a book called Action Comics. Did that inform how you wrote the script? Because the first arc is very action-oriented and very you know, heavy on the action. There's a lot of great characterization as well, but there definitely is a big focus on the you know, larger-than-life action of Superman versus Doomsday. Was that, a, um, I guess, a, a conscious decision given the name of the book? 100%. Okay. Um, <laughs> and seriously, whenever if you go back and look at the, that first arc, um, it was planned very much for the idea of reintroducing Superman um, to the audience in that way, this audience, because a lot of them probably had not read Lois and Clark. So I wanted to reintroduce the character, and I wanted to emphasize the title of Action Comics by having a lot of action in it right from the start. Okay. Now, with, with the, uh, the current arc with uh, Lois Lane kind of going undercover to you know, find out what happened to the New 52 Lois Lane, what's it like writing her, kind of doing her own thing and, and being Lois Lane again? Not that we didn't get to see her do that before, because obviously in Lois and Clark she was you know, still being an investigative reporter, but seeing her and, and actually getting into her head as she's doing this investigation, what's that like writing her? Uh, it's always fun and always a challenge to write Lois Lane and I say challenge because I always want to make sure that I'm faithful to the character somehow that um, I don't want to mess up well and as a writer you don't want to mess up anything but I think I'm particularly sensitive to that in terms of Lois because it's there are a long list of mess ups I think and so to get back to the overall effort of what the series was, the idea, first of all, was reintroduce Superman and the concept of action. Then the next couple of issues were to reintroduce Clark Kent and, and get him in in terms of who he is. And then the next couple of issues would go to Lois. So right from the start, it was Superman, Clark, Lois, and, and get them on screen, reintroduce them um, to the readers while over in Superman, they're very much working on John and, and kind of exploring that relationship and as I said when I had Lois and Lois and Clark I wouldn't say she was in the background but she was working in the shadows and now the idea is to get Lois more into the foreground get her back into that environment where we recognize her most which is the Daily Planet mm-hmm. absolutely now what what is the coordination like between you and Peter Tomasi as you guys are kind of the, the core architects of Superman at the moment 
uh, and not just Pete, it would also include uh, Pat Gleason because he and Pete are co-writing Superman. And so we get together in the office, we sit down, and we just start to plan some things out and figure out, you know, to make sure we're not stepping on each other's toes character-wise in the first place, and then kind of steer these ships in the same direction to the point where, you know, we could potentially get to a crossover or something like that. And I guess, is there some coordination with uh, Phil as well with regards to Superwoman? Oh, very much so, yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, Phil and I talked fairly frequently, and especially, you know, since in the last issue of Action that came out, you saw Superwoman show up. So that required some conversation, just as Phil is talking to me a lot about Lex Luthor because he's doing some stuff with Lex. What's it like writing the New 52 Lex, and how do you approach him differently or the same as you would have approached Lex in the past? Oh, no, I think this Lex does require a different approach, and I think it's because he is more complex than the Lex Luthor I would have written in the past. And, you know, if you start with this notion of someone who on the surface would appear to want to be a hero and is in the Justice League and is, is, you know, certainly making these efforts, that that makes him a tremendously complicated character. Because one of the questions that I think I would always ask is, can any of us ever be a hero if we don't step up and pu- publicly admit our faults and our sins and our, the things we're guilty of in the past, and Lex has not done that? So then how do you reconcile all of that? And that's why I find Lex to be tremendously compelling. Okay. Now, we do have some listener questions if you have a few minutes for us. Sure, sure. Uh, first up, we have Jeff Dyer asks uh, if there's any chance of seeing your art in action comics or maybe by issue 1,000. Boy, I would like to. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I have kind of fallen into this spot where right now I have so much stuff that I'm writing, I haven't had a chance to draw, and that is not necessarily how I planned it. We just sort of have gotten here, and at some point, yes, I do want to get back to the board. Okay. Uh, have you been thinking about what to do for Action 1000? Because it's not that far away. It isn't that far away. Uh, in very loose terms, I've thought about it a little bit, but in very concrete terms, we're really having to deal with the here and now. Okay. Uh, Jeff Dyer, this is a little longer. He says, while I love that the real Superman is back, I'll admit that I'm having issues with the fact that all other characters except Lois and John don't have a history with him. Makes for strange reading when Perry, Jimmy, etc. don't have that shared history. Will this be resolved at some point, and will Clark change his name back to Kent soon? You know, he's asking questions that if I answer either way, I start to give away the ends of some stories. So I will politely say that those are very good questions and certainly (laughs) things we'll have to explore moving forward. Okay. Um, Our listener Shotzi asks, what are the odds of a Booster Gold series written and drawn by you in 2017? Uh, That would be wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) But again, we have to go back to my previous answer. Right now I have so much on my plate that it's really hard to get to it. Uh, but I would dearly love to get back to Booster at some point. Okay. Uh, Shagamu asks, in the late 90s, did you have any plans for Superman past issue 150 that you never got to execute? And also, how old are Superman and Lois supposed to be now? No, I can't say, to answer the first question, that I had plans to go past 150. I think it was time um, to come off the book, and I also say that just recognizing what DC's plans for the characters were at that time that you know it was it was a good point to get off 
Um, in terms of the second question, remind me what the second question again was, please. Uh, how old are Superman and Lois supposed oh, to be now? Right. I, I like to look at it and say that really right now I put Superman at about 32, 33. Okay. Uh, next question by Garuda is... Possibly older, by the way. We, we haven't quite pinned that down, and I don't know that we necessarily want to. So you could even increase that a couple of years. Okay. Uh, actually, I have, a, I have a question of my own. Um, what prompted you guys to get rid of the beard? Is it just because he was Superman now and Superman doesn't have a beard? Or I think that the beard and the black costume in Lois and Clark, since he wanted to set himself off from the new 52 Superman, worked out very, very well. I think that once we got into Rebirth, where he was coming out of the shadows and stepping back into public and wearing his more familiar looking costume and everything else that at that point yeah the beer the beard it had to go whose original concept was it for the the black and i guess silver um costume in lois and clark oh we talked about a couple of different ideas at that time um i think somehow we boy i i don't remember if it was me i don't remember if it was just in a general discussion but I, I know I said we needed something, and uh, I, I am not 100% sure how that necessarily evolved in retrospect. Because part of it is when you're putting together a series, you have so many different discussions. Mm-hmm. And um, I know I always wanted to have him wear something and have the S-Shield in it somehow. And, of course, I have some familiarity with the black costume and sort of what it could mean. It's sort of a uh, the you know, undercurrent of a Superman resurrected sort of thing to it, but it, it might have been Eddie, it might have been Dan, it might have been me. I honestly couldn't tell you for sure. And and what about the beard? Because obviously it does set him apart, but whose idea was it to kind of let him have this beard to kind of make him look different? Same thing, and that, that might have even been Lee sketching. We were all, you know, talking about it all the time, and I could not tell you exactly what the genesis of that was, I'm afraid. Okay. A uh, question from a listener named Garuda. He asks, uh, is there any chance that all of the loose ends from your previous Booster Gold Time Master series will ever be tied up, such as who was Rip's mother? You know, I, I would always like to do that, but I don't know how practical it is. When when we got into so many of those things, the idea was going to be that I would answer almost all of that stuff, probably with the exception of, you know, Rip's mother, with his Booster Gold number 50. Unfortunately, we didn't get to Booster Gold number 50. Um, we got, what would, I think we got to 48. I think it was 48, yeah. 48, and then the new 52 launched, so we didn't get to that, I'm afraid. But I, I would like to answer some of those questions, but what I'm unsure of now is that's getting to be, you know, six, seven years ago, and I don't know that that would be playing fair with the audience to go back and do that because we have a whole new audience now that is not familiar with all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a question of my own. Um, what's it like when you're doing... Actually, I think I lost the... Oh, now I remember what the question was. Um, does your scripting process change now that you're double shipping? Like, do you consciously change how each issue kind of works because you know the next issue is going to be two two weeks away? Or do you approach it the exact same as you would a regular monthly? No, I, I adjust it because it is twice a month. And I think the best example of that might be the Clark Kent two-parter that it was two relatively quiet issues that I really enjoyed doing because it got us into this idea that we were going to explore 
the, the uh, other mysterious Clark Kent. If those two issues had shipped 30 days apart, I would have structured it, I think, quite a lot differently. I did it this way because it was only two weeks and, and because I think it's easier for the audience to stay interested in that kind of a story that didn't have a lot of Superman in it, you know, and over two week or a two week time frame than a two month time frame. When you first found out that it was going to be double shipping, what was your kind of reaction to that kind of workload? I said, huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a person who has worked on weekly comics, all the way back to when Action went weekly for a while, mm-hmm. to Future's End, to doing zero hours a weekly, to uh, the whole time I was on Superman at times time, you know, we would take the two, three, four books, whatever we were at the time, and kind of turn weekly. Um, I am very accustomed to the idea that comics do not have to just be monthly, and I feel very comfortable with that, and can certainly see the advantages in comics that ship twice a month. And I think the advantages are, if you hook the audience, I think you're going to be more inclined to keep the audience because you can continue to hit them with a steadier dose of story. You can spend a little more time, I think, on the supporting cast. You can explore other directions in greater length than you would probably do in a monthly comic. So I see the advantages to it, and I was for it right from the start. Are there any supporting characters in uh, action comics that you're particularly excited about using? Having a lot of fun with Steve Lombard, even though I've gotten <laughs> to use him for a few panels, just because he adds something very different to it. Um, but I, I think, by and large, right now, it's it's going to be able to a point more and more where it's all about Clark. Okay. Uh, another listener question, I think this is actually the last one, which was, uh, what was your experience of having to work with and coordinate your stories with two, then three, then four other creative teams on the Superman books back in the 90s? It, were, it worked great for a couple of reasons. One is because we did start with two books in the beginning. And, and some of that had been done even before I came on the books. Um, then I came on, it went to three, we did it then, grew it to four, And we had a group of creators who were very willing to do that as as part of the gig and could see what that form of storytelling offered in the macro sense as opposed to just in your private individual sense as a writer that you would have to um, sometimes give up a part of yourself as a writer for the overall good and tell a much bigger story. And we had a group of creators that were always willing to do that. And we started with a great editor in Mike Carlin who understood how to get people to do that and how to coordinate those efforts and and really make it about the story and telling the strongest story possible while all at the same time being incredibly coordinated in making sure that everybody always had the type of information they needed to make it work. When you were working on this, the, your short-lived run on Sensational Spider-Man, uh, you were also part of like a large team where there was a lot of coordination happening. What was it like navigating that, having gone from the Superman model to then the Spider-Man model at the time, which maybe wasn't the greatest model because it was in the middle of a, uh, a lot of upheaval as well? It was in the middle of a lot of upheaval, and it was probably a lot more chaotic that uh, I, I was coming from a background where that weekly sort of approach to telling a story worked like uh, clockwork, that, you know, we could all say we were on the same page, moving in the same direction, 
And by the time, you know, I went to do Sensational, I think we wanted different things. I think uh, there were those at Marvel who were constantly changing their mind about what they wanted Spider-Man to be. And it was probably a, me not being the right guy in that place at that time. And so that's why I was there a short time and checked out because it, it wasn't right for me and I probably wasn't right for Marvel. And again, there's no crime in that. It, it's just to say it wasn't the right fit at that time. Why do you think, with regards to the Superman books that you worked on in the 90s, why do you think the Triangle era, so to speak, was so beloved? Because it does seem like a lot of people really enjoyed that era. Uh, they liked the cohesion do you think that's part of the reason why people liked it so much, that it felt like a, a true ongoing serial, even though we had four different books? I think that's a lot of it. I, I also think that in the 90s, the, the 90s, I think, probably get a fair amount of unfair criticism uh, because a lot of people look back on it a certain way and say it was too much this, it was too much that, you know, whatever it might the case might be. But at the same time, there was a lot of fun stuff that came out of the 90s. The death of Superman was an epic event. The kind of thing that will never be replicated in comics. I mean, we'll never see anything like that again. And then, but I think we also built in a lot of good story in and around that that went on from that. And, um, you know, we even did what some people call the electric blue Superman when we did Superman red, Superman blue, stuff like that. And I won't say it was necessarily our finest moment, but even now... I'm amazed at how many people have really fond memories of that stuff, and they come up to us and, and will talk to us about that. And the fact is, the book sold well, that that I think we found a good audience and had built Superman to a point where he was a really strong character again for DC. And to me, Superman should always have that status. Absolutely. Are there any last uh, teases you can give us with regards to upcoming uh, stories in action comics? I think we have some really good stuff coming up. And as I said, what we're really uh, building on now are a couple of things. One is we have a story called Men of Steel coming up that very much involved Superman and his relationship with Lex Luthor. And and it's really going to get into those two guys and what happens if they're ever forced to team up because it's not a natural for either one of them. And then at the same time, we really are going to build more and more the mystery of this other Clark and see where that takes us. Okay. And actually I do have one more question. What's it like working with the uh, different artists who are doing action comics right now? Oh, they're all great. And it's, I'm very fortunate to have, whether it's Patrick Zercher or Tyler Kirkham or Steven Scovia, some three guys who are very committed to what they're doing with Superman. And they all bring their own personal style to the book. But at the same time, I think they're helping to keep the book consistent in the way it reads and I'm very happy with the fact that so far um, we haven't had to you know, get a fill in for any of the three of them that we're building kind of this consistent approach to the book that I think is really strong. Had you previously worked with any of those creators? I had worked with uh, Pat Zercher on uh, Future's End. He was one of the artists on that. I really liked what he was doing there and as soon as we started to talk about action and this idea that we were going to need several different artists, he was one of the first guys I asked for. Um, but no, hadn't really had a chance to work much with Tyler or Steven before that. Okay. 
Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about uh, your current work. And we were really excited to see uh, more about uh, Action Comics and Batman Beyond. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. You got it.